Well, good morning. Again, welcome to Cornerstone Church. It is a blessing to have you here this morning and to worship together with us to exalt his glorious name. We're continuing in Galatians chapter 1, and we will be reading in just a moment from verses 13 through 24, but we'll only be able to look at four verses today. Sort of a continuation of the verses that we have seen in the last two Sundays, verse 10, and then last Sunday, 11 and 12. So Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, I want you to see the whole context here. For you have, verse 13, you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicily, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father of all glory, we give you praise this morning. God, thank you that we can come together as a body of believers and worship you. Lord, that we could be edified through worship, through singing songs, through giving, through the proclamation of your word, through the communion service. God, what a joy it is to meet together and to worship you in unison. God, thank you for our text. God, thank you for this book. God, thank you how you worked in the life of the Apostle Paul that is all of you. Lord, we don't seek to uphold a man, even a man, a man that you called and sent. But we seek to glorify you for what you do in the lives of people that are in rebellion against you. And God, thank you that you, Lord, through even his life, through his pre-conversion, his conversion, and even post-conversion, God, we can see clearly that this message, the gospel of grace, is not a message that originated from Paul, but it originated from you. It's the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
your son. And so we give you praise. We pray for you to work in our hearts and in our minds. God, continue to form us, conform us to your image, the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Think of this. Some of us used to be sexually immoral. Some were thieves and driven by our greed. Some were drunks and drug addicts. Some of us were religious and self-righteous. All of us were proud and stubborn and hostile to the true God. We were dead in our trespasses, and we refused to submit to God's law. We were a part of this evil world system, the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the prince of the power of the air. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. He raised us up. He raised us from spiritual death. By grace, you have been saved. And again, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the story of God's redemption, his redemptive work in the lives of those who believe. This is the story of redemption throughout the centuries. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And salvation in Christ brings radical transformation. You see, the work of Christ is sufficient. It is complete. And by the power of the Spirit, the believing one is transformed. We are risen from spiritual death so that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. All the work of God. Paul wrote to those in the pagan city of Corinth. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What grace, what mercy, what transformation, what conversion. By God's grace, he takes sinners, rebels like you and I, and he gives us his own righteousness. We have been cleansed as Paul wrote to those in Corinth, we have been set apart unto God. We have been declared righteous before a holy God. This is also what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, formerly called by his Roman or Latin name, Saul. We see a radical transformation, yet it's presented here in Galatians in the context of Paul's credentials as an apostle declaring the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers were attacking Paul's apostolic credentials, his qualification, and his message. So in verses 10, as we began to see two weeks ago through 14, actually through 24, Paul defends his credentials and his message of grace, salvation by the grace of God. In verse 10, Paul makes the case that he was not seeking the favor of men, but that of God. 
that he was, if he was still trying to please men, he would not be a slave of Christ. Paul makes it clear that his allegiance was not to man, but to Christ, his Lord. Christ was Paul's Lord, his sovereign Lord, and Paul was his willing slave. In verses 11 and 12, Paul tells the Galatians that the gospel is not according to man, that he did not receive it from man, nor did any man teach him, but that he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ revealed. He unveiled himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. For Christ himself is the good news. Salvation is in him alone. To know him is to know the only true God and experience God's grace, even eternal salvation. And then as we continue in the next 12 verses, verses 13 through 24 that we read a few moments ago, Paul gives undeniable proof that his message was received from God, proof from his pre-conversion life, from his conversion itself, and from his post-conversion life, proof that he was sent by God declaring the revelation of Jesus Christ, declaring the gospel, the good news of Christ. So first, let us consider proof from Paul's pre-conversion life in verses 13 and 14. So let's read those again. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism far beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my father. Fathers, excuse me. It is clear that nothing in Paul's pre-conversion life provided the source of truth, the truth that he was now proclaiming. Rather, both his conversion and his message were founded upon divine revelation. In verse 13, Paul begins, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. You see, Paul's reputation preceded him. There was no question as to who he was as a Jew. He was known as a devout Jew and a persecutor of the church. Paul stood before King Agrippa near the end of his life in Acts 26, and he said to him, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth. But he continues in the next verse, verse 5, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. As a Pharisee, Paul would have followed. He would have sought to follow the 613 Jewish laws. But he would have also followed the Jewish oral tradition that was now recorded at that time in the Talmud. Paul or Saul was an extremely law-centered man. He had centered his life around obedience. Yet just like nearly all Pharisees, he missed the point of the law. He sought salvation through his own efforts, and he became extremely self-righteous. Paul also wrote about his former life to the church in Philippi. He writes in chapter 3, circumcised the eighth day, bringing him into that Mosaic covenant 
of the nation of Israel. So he was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the tribe of Benjamin, an elite tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he was a Hebrew by birth and a Hebrew by practice. But watch this. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. These are all credentials that Paul counted as loss, as rubbish for the sake of Christ, in order to have the righteousness not derived from the law, but that which is by faith in Christ. In Paul's zeal for Judaism, he persecuted all who opposed his traditions. Verse 13 again, for you have heard of my former, of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. And he didn't just persecute it, persecute it. He tried to destroy it. In Acts 8, Luke writes, but Saul being, but Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he was delivering them into prison. And that's exactly what Paul was doing when he was heading to Damascus in Acts 22 to bring those believers in Damascus back to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul's pre-conversion life was centered around the law and tradition and works. But understand, it's not that God's grace was not apparent in the Old Covenant. We see God's grace certainly in the sacrificial system. However, the, the religious leaders had lost sight of God's grace and instead had come to trust their own efforts, their own works. It was a so-called righteousness through obedience to the law founded in the belief that they possessed God's favor simply because they were circumcised descendants of Abraham, and followed the Mosaic Covenant. So it was apparent here. Paul knew Pharisaical Judaism, didn't he? He knew it inside and out. He lived it. He breathed it. He taught it. He defended it with his own life. He, above any man, knew this system of religion He writes again in verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul stood head and shoulders among many of his contemporaries in his zeal for pharisaical Judaism. So Paul here in Galatians 1 was saying that his pre-conversion life was diametrically opposed to the message of grace that he now proclaimed, and that nothing in his unconverted life provided the source of truth that he was now proclaiming. The truth Paul now proclaimed came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we saw in verse 12. Now let's consider Paul's conversion in verses 15 and 16, and that's as far as we'll get today. It's actually 16a. The the verses are broken down in in an unusual manner. Verse 15, but when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. 
Nothing in Paul's pre-conversion experience could account for the transformation that God brought to him. MacArthur writes this about the Apostle Paul. His or Paul's legalistic zeal had put him on a headlong course of destruction from which no natural force short of death could have deterred him. So Paul's conversion could only be supernatural and sovereign. It was apart from human testimony or persuasion. Paul said that he had been set apart from his mother's womb, referring to what? To the elective purpose of God. No person is saved and called into service apart from God's sovereign grace and predetermined will. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to our own choosing. No. Actually, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in Christ The Lord set Paul apart unto salvation and service, not because Paul had great leadership skills or writing skills or was a hard worker or even because he knew this religious system. No, he had been set apart and consecrated by God, even from his mother's womb to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Paul was chosen to be an apostle before he was even born just as Jacob was chosen over Esau before their birth, Romans 9, just as Isaiah and Jeremiah were called and consecrated to ministry while still in their mother's wombs, Isaiah 49 and Jeremiah 1, and just as John the Baptist was called even before his conception to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the Mashiach, Luke chapter 1. Paul's Jewish readers would have known that he was comparing his calling to that of these great men, not that he was bragging, no, but that he was declaring the sovereign choosing of God. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He established here that his calling was entirely God's doing, and God's purpose became a historical fact on the road to Damascus. Verse 15 again, but when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. Notice first, Paul says in verse 15, God called me through his grace. It was God's unmerited, unearned favor by which God saved the already elect Apostle Paul and sent him. He saved him and sent him to serve. He was apostle, a sent one. But it was not until Christ in resurrection glory confronted Paul on the road to Damascus that Paul responded with the great reality of the gospel that that Jesus, though he had been crucified and buried, was alive. Did you get that? It was not until Christ 
in resurrection glory confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, that Paul responded to the great reality of the gospel, that Jesus, though he had been crucified and buried, see, Paul still thought he was in the grave. But he came to know that this Jesus whom he was persecuting, was alive, that he was risen from the dead. And that's only possible by the work and power of God. Paul immediately realized that only a resurrected Jesus could proclaim from glory, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, he's alive. He's the sovereign Lord, therefore, and we will give an account to him. You know, it's it's really no wonder Paul called himself a slave of Jesus Christ. No wonder Jesus, the Messiah, was his Lord. He was a willing slave of this Lord, this glorious Lord, this one that came to save sinners. Notice God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. The end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16. As Paul was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city And it shall be told you what you must do. Paul's call to salvation was accompanied by a call to serve, to preach him, to preach Christ among the Gentiles. Although Paul's exact salvation experience was unique to him, God does not call any person to salvation whom he does not call to service. They're inseparable. We are all created. If you're in Christ, we are all created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Peter also wrote, think of it, speaking to the church, speaking to believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2, 9. You see, we are saved out of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, as a people for God's own possession. He is our God in the new covenant. He is our God and we are his people. We're saved to be both witnesses and servants of the resurrected Lord. Remember the discussion Jesus had with his disciples after our Lord's encounter with the woman at the well in John 4. His disciples had gone to find food. And after the woman, Jesus interacted with that woman And she went back into the city. Then the disciples returned with food and said, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were wondering, I mean, who who brought him food? And Jesus said this to his disciples, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, he's saying, our Lord is saying that there's something that's more satisfying than earthly food, something that brings real satisfaction for the believer to do the will of him in Christ, in Christ's case, him that sent me. We have been sent as well. Jesus then said, do you not know, or, or excuse me, do not say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. And that's exactly what we must do. We must lift up our eyes and look around us. We can become so self-centered even as a church so self-focused that we forget the world around us, but we must lift up our eyes and look on the field that God has already prepared for harvest. Just like Paul, we're called to take the message of Christ to a world in darkness, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's exactly what the woman at the well did after her encounter with the Mashiach. She went back to her people. She went into the city and said this, come see a man who told me all things that I've done. Is this not the Christ? See, she didn't have to go to seminary to learn how to proclaim Christ. She, in her understanding at that time, just went and proclaimed Christ. Is not this the Christ? He told me all things that I've ever done. Is not this the Christ? You see, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are called to proclaim him as good news. Christ is the good news. The Lord revealed to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, just as he was approaching that city, going to bind Christians. And Christ revealed himself. Christ is the good news. Is this not what we see in the text? That we, like the Apostle Paul, it certainly applies here. We are called, we're chosen, and we're called. We are safe, we're born again. We have been called to serve. We're called to go and to take the gospel. Look at verses 15 and 16 once again. But when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb, call me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. God has called all of us. We must proclaim him as good news. The risen Christ is the good news. In him is salvation. In him are the riches of God's grace. In him is every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You see, people do not need my opinion. Everybody has an opinion, but they don't need my opinion, and they don't need yours. They need to hear about the one who saves by his grace. That's what people need. They don't need our opinion. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that his purpose was, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses, verse 1, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. They didn't need the law to save them. We'll say it that way. While the law shows us our sinfulness and our need for rescue 
the law of God cannot save. That's what the Judaizers were promoting. They were actually saying, yes, we're saved through Christ. We're saved through faith, but you must be circumcised and you must adhere to the Mosaic covenant. But folks, salvation is in Christ alone. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. The sinner's only hope is an encounter with the risen Lord, not with us. It is to be born from above. It is to know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Next week, we will consider Paul's post-conversion life. But as we've seen this morning, nothing in Paul's unconverted life provided the source of truth that he now proclaimed as a believer in Jesus Christ. Rather, it was by the mighty hand of God. It was by the revelation of Jesus Christ that Paul proclaimed the gospel of grace. Anyone who preaches any other gospel other than the one revealed to the apostle Paul and the apostles, the one revealed in God's word today is anathema. They are eternally cursed. This is God's justice on the Judaizers as well as on anyone who proclaims any other gospel. If you've never been born from above, the sovereign grace of the risen Lord surely pricks your heart this morning that you might repent of your sin and look to Christ. Believe the good news of the gospel. He is risen. He's not in the grave. You think of all the religious leaders throughout history that have people have looked up to and even worshiped and they've died and they're in the grave. Jesus Christ is not in the grave. He is risen. You see, the resurrected Lord revealed himself to the apostle Paul. He is risen. He is risen indeed. If you however, can identify with the, with the Apostle Paul. If you can say, I'm not what I used to be. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All this morning that we would worship the one who saved us by his grace. As we come to the Lord's table, may we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. May we bow our hearts before him and commit ourselves to serve him using our gifts, committing ourselves to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ and to proclaim him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen one to a world in darkness. People need to hear God is sovereign in salvation, but he has chosen to use us. He has called us to service. As we often say, the Lord's table looks back to the Lord's death. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And by the shedding of blood, Christ mediated the new covenant by which he has removed our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh by which or by the new covenant, I should say he has written his law on our minds and even engraved them on our hearts by the new covenant. The spirit of God dwells in us. just think of this. 
God himself, the eternal creator, lives in us. He lives in us individually, and he lives in the midst of the body of his church. We, plural, are the temple of God. And by the new covenant, he is our God, and we are his people, even children of the living God. The Lord's table also looks ahead to the second coming. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on till the day when I drink it new or unnew with you in my father's kingdom. Drink it new. Kanos, new in quality, new as in not like before. It's going to be different. And I don't know everything. I don't know what that means, I should say, exactly. But it's going to be glorious. So not only do we look back to Christ's efficacious work on the cross, his body was broken and his blood was shed. We look ahead knowing because he is risen, he will return and we will commune with him for all eternity. We remember the Lord's death, as I've already said. We remember his body broken and his blood that was shed. Unleavened bread represents his body. He was without sin. His body was broken on the cross. And the wine or grape juice represents the blood that he shed. So let's break it down even further. The unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless body that was broken through which we enter into God's presence without guilt as children of God, wearing or dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The wine represents the blood of Christ that washes away sin. And as I like to say, I think the bitterness of the wine represents God's justice and wrath. We certainly see that in the word of God, but the sweetness of the wine represents his abundant blessings. So here's the idea. The Lord Jesus Christ took our wrath, the wrath that we deserve, that we might have his abundant blessings. So if you're here this morning, even if you're visiting with us, you're welcome to partake. As long as you know the Lord and you are willing to examine yourself, examine your heart, your worship, repent, or confess any sin that you might have, that you might partake in a worthy manner. But if you don't know him, please let it pass you by. If you're still in darkness, if you still don't understand, let it pass you by and contemplate what you've heard this morning. Contemplate that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He died by crucifixion. He was buried in the grave, and three days later, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And because he lives, we will live. Because he lives, we will one day be resurrected to be with him forever. God is faithful. You can trust him. This is certainly a time of worship, and I challenge you to worship. But before we partake, before we partake in this observance that pictures the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us now 
examine our own hearts before God in a time of silent prayer.